What's up, dog? Downward Trending, the podcast where friends break down the vast subcultures of that internet, son. I'm Louis Maroney. What's up, dog? What's yeah. up? We just watched a bunch of Churdley's videos on uh, YouTube. Churdley's. I have not actually watched a whole lot of his stuff, but so, I got to start. I'm going to be speaking like uh, that for a while. After. <laughs> yeah, bruh. Um, so this is going to be a special episode because it's actually, it's actually going to be a, um, an Oreo double-stuffed episode. Mm-hmm. A double decker triple, um, a double decker peanut butter jelly sandwich episode, if you will. Look, dog, we got two episodes today, two interviews. Um, the first one I did was um, Luke O'Neill. He's a freelance writer. Um, he's written for the Boston Globe. He's written for Vice. He's written for Esquire. Esquire um, a bunch of places. He now predominantly writes a newsletter called Welcome to Hell World, which is where he talks about a barrage of things, mostly mostly. Um, societal um politics and such um but we talked about a whole bunch of stuff regarding um the current state of kind of newsletters and the idea of independent journalism and kind of what that means in the grand scheme of things and that was a solo interview i wasn't there for that one yeah joe was not there for that one um i don't know joe do you, you're you're a writer and you have a blog what do you how do you how does it feel having that little independent uh sandbox to play in yeah it's cool i mean i've only put up like four articles on it mm-hmm. but um yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, you know, I like, I don't know, I just like looking at it, you know? Yeah. Like, it, it's very clean. Um, I like the format of WordPress. I know a mm-hmm. lot of people use Medium. I use Medium. Personally, um, like, Medium, it definitely looks more sleek, uh, but I feel like the brand Medium is just too all over it. Yeah. So it's sort of hard to, it wouldn't be like, you know, Joe's blog, it would be like, Joe's medium page. No, word, that's yeah. sort of why I like the minimalist um, aspect of WordPress. And it's cool, you know, like, you know, I'm just in the price process of writing my first paid article. Um, yeah. So I've really only had experience uh, here at the magazine. And yeah. obviously, like, I have, you know, a fair amount of freedom here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it does feel good to not be hampered by, like, a word count. Yeah. Or something like that. And you just sort of being able to go more niche, you know, the, yeah. the first article I wrote for my blog was, um, sort of, I was trying to make a very like dense point, um, that may not have, um, I, I may have, ma- may have had to make, uh, some compromises if I were to write it for a publication that yeah. wasn't just my blog. So, um, it felt nice to sort of have that freedom to play around. Um, and newsletters, I think, are definitely, like, way different than a blog. Yeah. You know, it's sort of um, a sort of update, not not only on, like, your writing, but sort of, like, the writer's thoughts on it as a person as it goes along. Um, yeah. I subscribe to this foreign policy blog called, um, and that's the way it was, mm-hmm. sort of, like, let left-wing um, foreign policy analysis. And that's not a newsletter, but it's sort of in the same format as a newsletter. Yeah. Um, and it, it's a format that I... 
you know, I I wasn't really um, into Tiny Lighter. I I don't think that was, you know, Tiny Lighter was definitely like big with a lot of people, but I don't really think uh, it was targeted towards me. Like, like right, as like a guy. Um, yeah. So I I don't know a ton about it, and I'm excited to listen to this interview. Word, and you'll hear Luke say, I think even with um newsletters, all the newsletters that are successful, or at least most of them, are started by people who already had a following. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like his, 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 he had, like Luke had a following for like 20 years, so his new newsletter took off. Someone like David Turner, who was a writer for a track record in MTV News, had a newsletter. Yeah, Ty AB too, especially. I mean, those are all, these are all um, Eve Pizer, uh, Alphonse Pierre. These are all people who had like big followings beforehand, mm-hmm. which is why this was able to take off. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting interview, guys. We talk about a bunch of stuff. We talk about newsletters. Um, aside from that, we, have, we also talk about activism and mm-hmm. just, um, yeah, just... We also talk about Luke's background and how he became uh, a writer in general. Yeah, I know he's a Boston guy. He was like yeah. a hardcore guy, right? Um, he was in, he's, a, he's an emo band, like a Smiths-inspired kind of emo band. Cool, cool. Um, if you listen to our bonus episode with Chris Ott, you'll know that Chris Ott also was in the same scene as him at that time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he mentioned that a little bit. Oh, uh, because they're both, yeah, they're both <laughs> they're, Boston guys. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, guys, um, enjoy this interview with uh, Luke O'Neill and let it roll. Yeah, bruh. Today I'm here. This is an interview with uh, Luke O'Neill. Luke is a well. Luke, why don't you why don't you introduce yourself? How would you describe uh, Luke O'Neill? Uh, I guess uh, a journalist of sorts, but uh, now I'm sort of uh, focusing on a, a newsletter. It's called Welcome to Hell World, and uh, it's kind of journalism, kind of uh, just uh, writing in a more literary way, and it's uh, been turned into a book, which is. Coming out uh, in about a month, uh, at the end of August, early September. Also called Welcome to Hell World. So, all right, cool. Um, how did um, how how did you go about um, creating creating the book, like turning uh, Welcome to Hell World into a book? Well, <clears throat> it's interesting because in both cases, uh, I, I usually tend to be, I don't know, I kind of have to be dragged into doing something new, uh, right. and. Uh, when when the folks who run uh, Substack, that's the, uh, the sort of new uh, newsletter company, they came to me last year, and I guess they were recruiting lots of writers, and, and they, they continue to do so uh, to, to use their platform, and, and the guy kind of had to twist my arm because, you know, I, I, I've been a, pretty much a traditional freelance journalist for most of my life, for about 15 years now, mm-hmm. uh, most of my career anyways, not my life, but... Um, uh, you know, writing for for uh, places like Esquire and, and the Boston Globe were you know two of my main uh, places I wrote for for many years. Um, so I don't know. I was like, I don't. What's a newsletter? I don't really know how that would work, and I don't think anyone would sub- sub- subscribe. Excuse me. Um, but I was like, all right, fuck it. I'll do. I'll give it a try, and if it doesn't work, then you know, no big deal. So. Yeah, I started to do it. Weirdly, people started to subscribe, and then you know, a few thousand here, a few thousand there. And after it kind of became a little bit popular, the the folks uh, at this publisher, uh, OR Books in New York, the the guy, the publisher was a big fan, and he came to me with the idea of, of compiling the essays in the newsletter into a book, and 
And I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, same thing with the newsletter. But uh, he was like, you know, it'll it'll be pretty easy. And I was like, well, all right, fuck it. I'll try that. And um, so, yeah, basically both things, the newsletter and the book just came because somebody kind of, you know, kicked me in the ass a little bit and, and got me motivated. And, and uh, I'm glad they did because, you know, I, I generally uh, I tend to be a pretty fucking lazy person who doesn't want to do anything. <laughs> um, when you how did you? Let's go back to the beginning for a second. Uh, where are you from? Uh, how did you, you know, not only get into writing, but um, partic- particularly how did you uh, fall into, like, you know, more journalistic essay writing and freelancing and such? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I live uh, just outside of Boston now, mm-hmm. and I've lived here for – I lived in Massachusetts. I, you know, I grew up here. Uh, I've lived, you know, a few other places in my life, New York and, and D.C. for brief periods, but uh, pretty much, you know, around the Boston area most of my life. And – um, I, I didn't, I, I studied English in college. I always, you know, was a big reader. Um, and I was, you know, a little bit of a writer. I, I did some writing in college and, um, I always wanted to be, I had this vague idea of being a journalist. I, I wanted to be a music journalist. Uh, I was also, I'm also a musician, um, and, you know, sort of was an obsessive music fan uh, growing up and, you know, through most of my adulthood now, even though I, I sort of tapered off a little bit now that I'm older um, and, you know, don't feel like going out to shows like four nights a week anymore. Uh-huh. But um, uh, somehow, I don't know, I I never really thought I didn't really know what being a journalist was. Uh, you know, this is I, I graduated college and like. 99 so this is a while ago and the things were different it was sort of a different landscape for media then the the internet was you know newspapers and magazines were just sort of starting to figure out how to you know use the internet and they took a really long time to figure it out which is which is kind of gotten a lot of them in the bind that they're the they've been in for the past few years um but somehow, I have no idea how, I just applied for some random editorial assistant job uh, at Condé Nast and uh, working on, you know, as an editorial assistant. I got that and I, I went there and, and worked for them for a couple of years, um, basically doing nothing. I didn't really learn anything. It was a, you know, shitty job. But, you know, it was a foot in the door. And um, and then I, I decided, well, I, I've always wanted to be a writer more so than a journalist. You know, uh, I wanted to write, you know, literary things, you mm-hmm. know, like, a, as I said, I was always a voracious reader of fiction and, and poetry. So I went, came back to Boston to go to Emerson uh, to go to grad school to get an MFA. And uh, I was just about I did that for, you know, two years. I did all the classes and everything it was about time to. I, I don't know if this is all really fucking boring. Uh, no, it's fun. This is good. Yeah, this is. Um, and uh, just when I was came time to do my thesis, uh, I heard about a job at the Weekly Dig, which was this all weekly here in Boston. So there was two all weeklies at the time: it was Boston Phoenix and, and the Weekly Dig. Mm-hmm. And they had a job for a, a music editor, and so I applied for that, and and you know somehow got that. And uh, I was like, well, I'm a writer. I'm a professional writer now. I don't need to finish this degree. I'm just going to go, and this is it. This is the start <laughs> of my career. 
and I took the took that job making a I was making twenty thousand dollars a year with no benefits. It was, uh, but I felt like I had, you know, I felt like I had made it, you know. And right. uh, so that was sort of the start of my of my writing, uh, my journalism career. I was focusing on music journalism, which, you know, weirdly was still a thing people were interested in in the early two thousands. Uh, unlike now, where where you know that that whole profession has pretty much been decimated as well. When you say um. The internet, the internet has kind of gotten a, the. Um, you mentioned before that um, a lot of these um, publishers and these uh, websites have kind of, and like magazines have gotten themselves to a certain spot because of the of the internet. What do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, you, you, I'm sure you're well aware that, yeah. that nobody wants to pay for for mm-hmm. newspapers or magazines anymore, and you know the number of them that have closed. Like when I uh, so when I started out, there was all weeklies in almost every city, for example, uh, you know, even smaller cities. And those, those started to go away because a lot of them were, were sort of room, uh, you know, they, once Craigslist came along, they kind of cut off like this huge source of revenue for all weeklies. And, and that, that Craigslist also fucked with daily newspapers as well. Um, but all the while, a lot of these big newspapers and magazines were really slow to even get online. And, uh, like, they didn't really, they really sort of dragged their feet about figuring out how to accept that the Internet was, was going to change everything. Um, and at the time, and there's still some of this at, you know, some, some like, even to, until a couple, you know, not that long ago, three, four, five years ago, a lot of, older editors at some of these places, like especially like, you know, newspapers like the Boston Globe or stuff, they yeah. still had this uh, allegiance to print that was just, was just such a, like a, a dinosaur way of thinking about things. Um, so, you know, they, they, first they, papers and magazines decided, you know, well, we're just not going to get involved in the internet. And then a lot of them were like, well, we're just going to give it all away for free and we'll make the money through, you know, through impressions, through selling ads, and that didn't work out. And I think the industry at large just really fucked up how how to sort of weather the sea change from from print to digital. Well, then I mean, yeah, because yeah, I mean, even then you had the whole like pivot to video video that happened a couple of years ago. Right. And Vice right. had like I think they they laid off like at the time like sixty percent of their staff, of their oh, writing yeah, staff, yeah, I think, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's just a that's just a continuation of the pattern that I'm talking about that mm-hmm. that, that has been going on. You know, for 20 years, where where uh, people, you know, institutions are slow to sh- slow to change, especially older ones, you know, ones that have been around for a long time. Um, <clears throat> but that's not to say like that these younger, more nimble upstarts, you know, digital native, don't fuck up too, because they don't seem to know what they're doing either. All these sites come along and they're like, we're run by you know young people who get it, and we're gonna, you know, give the news to millennials in a way that they you know that, that they understand and yeah like mike.com sorry that was the whole mike.com thing yeah like mike for example yeah that's a perfect example of what i'm talking about the um the uh the through line through all of these though um in in the the, the this one similar bad guy in all of this and it's the owners who are you know often multi-millionaires right. who um, you know, they, they're uninterested in anything besides continuing to extract profit from, uh, 
uh, you know, the, the media properties that they own. And as soon as it looks like they aren't going to be able to maximize, you know, as much, uh, you know, just suck out as much money as possible that they, they either sell it off or close up shop, you know? And then, so, oh yeah, go ahead. So no, it's basically just a, you know, it's just a traditional st- uh, a story of traditional capitalism at work, you know, and, um, uh, a lot of the, the owners, um, of, of older print outlets and, and newer websites, if they, they don't seem content to just run a self, self-sustaining business. Everything's about growth, growth, growth. And if you, you know, if you, I don't, the, the idea of, so for me, the idea of running a, a, a magazine or a website or something that, that does interesting stuff, people read it, you know, maybe not, tens of millions, but people read it and it sustains itself and you, you can put out a good product. That seems pretty cool to me. I, I don't, I don't know uh, why a lot of these guys aren't satisfied with that, but that's, you know, that's, I guess that's the difference between them being super rich and me just being some fucking guy, you know, you have a newsletter, obviously we just mentioned, have you, would you say that like going towards a more, that writers need to be more resourceful in terms of people who want to make a living or even not make a living, but just put a up uh, um, put content out there do mm-hmm. like um would you say that um taking a more independent route like um newsletters is a maybe a better way to do that nowadays or it's it's certainly worth a try the mm-hmm. thing is <clears throat> it depends on what kind of career you want to have right. if you want to have the sort of traditional uh prestigious career you know where you go to the go to a really good college and you're probably interning at you know the new york times or the post or wherever are you know when you're still in college and you want to climb the ladder and and that sort of thing that that's that's still possible it's it's you know for a uh, uh increasingly small uh, or or uh, continuing to uh, to decrease the number of people that that's available to um but the alternative is is, you know, sort of going out on your own. And it has been, you know, it's similar to the, the podcasting thing. Like the, the new whole new thing that's going on with newsletters now is is basically the, the what we saw with podcasts. And um, there's going to be a lot of people that break out and are, become stars at it and, and make lots of money. And there's going to be, um, you know, a middle class of people who maybe make some a little extra money and it, you know, it's, it's, uh, to, to supplement their income. And then there's going to be tons of people that don't, uh, can't figure out how to make it work. And that's, um, that's not to say any of that has anything to do with talent. A lot of it's just luck and timing and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't, uh, if I was a young person starting out today, I wouldn't look at the newsletter model as, um, some sort of surefire path to, to, you know, breaking out or anything like that the, the sort of the sad thing about it is that the people who are doing well with newsletters are people who already uh had a sort of established brand in, in mm-hmm. writing or journalism you know? yeah um and that's not to say that somebody who starts one and it just happens to be great won't, won't find an audience but it's just you know it's not really going to be a sure thing so um i i highly recommend anyone who, who's you know, intrigued by it, try it. And, 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 you know, it's literally, you have nothing to lose, you know, maybe, maybe you find an audience, maybe it's really fulfilling to you, whether or not you charge money for it or not. It's just, 
you know, it, it, uh, it's a it's a pretty cool way to to be creative and, and connect with some readers. Right. Um, so a few. This, I, I believe this was a few months back. There was a whole thing that happened with the Boston Globe. Um, and I, yeah. Do, um, do you want to explain what happened with that quickly? Because that kind of segues to another topic, actually. Well, sure. That was. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, I, I, I wrote for lots of uh, publications like that mm-hmm. uh, over my career, and uh, I've been writing uh, an opinion column there for for about four or five months. Um, after after not writing for the Globe, I I started writing for the Globe, you know, probably ten fifteen years ago, but then I took some some years off, but mm-hmm. came back this this year. And I didn't really want to do it. Um, the editor there, like, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, I have to be, you know, convinced to do anything. I was like, fine, I'll do it. Because she really uh, was trying to convince me. And so the way I thought of it was that I'm just going to try to push the envelope as much as I can by including, uh, incorporating sort of um, angry uh, leftist uh, opinions in there, which you know you don't tend to see in a traditional newspaper. And you know, I did for the most part, I, I did a lot of good stuff about guns and and healthcare and and um, you know, rich fucks uh, screwing people over. Right. And um, but then I finally got to one that was about uh, the concentration camps we have. Yeah. And, uh, I, uh, it was around the time Kristen Nielsen was resigning for the Department of uh, Homeland Security, Secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I kind of like jokingly talked about what we should do to, to these people if uh, if you see them in a restaurant. Because I, I had been a waiter for a long time when I, when I was first coming up and, you know, freelancing. I, I was a waiter as well on the side. And um, it, it really made a lot of people mad uh, instantly the whole entire right-wing apparatus seized on it and you know fox news had a story up on it uh, on their website and then tucker carlson did something on it in that day and rush limbaugh and ben shapiro and all these people were sharing it like look at this disgusting lib uh. encouraging people to to uh you know poison republicans just because you they disagree and uh so the the Globe, um, like many other traditional legacy publications, they got cold feet, and they, uh, the owner stepped in, the billionaire owner, John Henry, and he said, take the thing down, so it was deleted. Um, so uh, so then I, I was like, fuck you, then I, I quit, you know, because I, I don't want to write for a place mm-hmm. that... Uh, and then they sort of... Um, you know, they didn't even stand by me at all. They they put out a statement saying Luke O'Neill isn't on staff. You know, it's, it's like as if uh, to distance themselves from me. So basically, they were siding with the Tucker Carlsons of the world and, and right. threw me under the bus. So uh, it, it was uncomfortable. I got lots of lots of hate for for you know uh, about a week and a half, and um, you know uh, people some of the worst people in the world uh, in my mentions for for a long time, but. Uh, you know, ultimately, I, I think it, it uh, probably worked to my to my benefit because it put my newsletter in front of a lot more eyeballs than than would have seen it otherwise. Uh, the reason why I bring that up is because I know um, I don't I don't know if you know Kim Kelly, the writer. She's a music, yeah yeah for sure she's, yeah she's yeah. a music right. 
uh, for those who don't know, she's a music journalist. She's written for, she was an editor at Vice, and she's kind of been involved in the kind of reburning of Teen Vogue. But she got, like, I know, recently it was announced she was, like, uh, fired, well, not fired from, but she was, like, told that, that NPR was, she was a contributing writer at NPR, and told her that they weren't going to, like, they were, they were going to start refusing to publish her because of, like, her activism, she, her, like, labor activism. Right. What are your thoughts on this whole idea of, like, companies, um, of, like, these, like, media companies suddenly like, kind of pushing more kind of pushing their more activist um you know uh involved yeah. um, writers yeah, and employees out of um kind of under the bus you know because like you know kim kelly was involved in the vice union and she she, she got laid off and you know right. as well yeah this is all in keeping all in line with the sort of the general through line of what i've been talking about here is that these large media companies the mm-hmm. traditional legacy media companies not being slow to adapt and NPR has gotten really strange uh, in the Trump era. Uh, they still seem to be uh, they still seem to be thinking that we're we're treating you know we're operating how things have always been, where you you know you present both sides and you let the uh, you know the listeners figure it out for themselves. But that that's not really uh, that sort of thing isn't working anymore. And the you know, New York Times has, has certainly slow, been slow to do that too. There was a thing recently where, where an NPR editor explained why they aren't going to use the word racist for, for Trump uh, when describing Donald Trump when he's obviously being racist. Um, and uh, it's just this weird adherence to this outdated norm about neutrality and objectivity in journalism. And, uh, you know, setting aside, you know, I, I align with Kim a lot on 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 our politics and our, our way of thinking. Um, right. You don't have to uh, be strident, uh, you know, anarchist or whatever. I think that you know whatever she is. Um, anarchist, yeah. Yeah, uh, but uh, you do the time for playing it down the middle, like you're some. 1970s newsman on TV or 1960s or whatever that that's gone that's not here uh, it's not an option anymore and uh, that doesn't mean that you have to like lie or bend the facts or, or anything like that it's just the opposite it, it, like you have to state uh, things as they are you have to explain the world as it is to people and you know bending yourself into knots like trying not to state the obvious something like trump is racist um or you know the whole debate they were having like don't call them concentration camps i was like you know the, that sort of thinking is 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 from a bygone era and and it's it's uh you know these places are gonna are, are sort of dragging their feet on on recognizing that and so that's you know that's sort of what happened to Kim, and that you know as a I don't think she was like a very regular contributor there or anything, but she was a freelancer there, and um, that's just another example of you know uh, what actually what happened to her is she got on Tucker Carlson and and, and shit like that uh. for something she did. I don't remember what what uh, what caught there uh, what made her catch their ire, and. That's why NPR decided to sever ties with her, right? Um, because the right was mad, and it's you know that's when, like the exact same thing that happened to, with me at the Globe. It's like they're they they're pandering to for some reason they're pandering to the right, who are going to hate them anyways. Like everyone who was mad 
at the Globe for my thing. They still hate the Globe, even though I'm not going to write there. And everyone who was mad at Kim for whatever she did uh, uh, is still going to hate NPR. And mm-hmm. it's just like they keep trying to uh, court a, you know an audience that is never going to accept them. Do you feel like – so what do you think is the solution? Do you think there's a, that'll ever um, – do you think that these, these um, com- companies will ever come around to like that fact or – uh, I don't know. Uh, some of them have. Uh, I, I, I guess you're seeing some of the some of the major uh, media outlets have started to, you know, use the word racist, or when it comes to Trump, or use, you know, call them the concentration camps, or or accurately talk about the the epidemic of gun violence or, or police violence, um, and uh, it's sort of slow. But I, I don't know. I'm not very I mean, it's nice to see little bits of it going on. I'm not particularly optimistic that we're going to see this giant sea change. Uh, you still have cable news networks mm-hmm. are, are still largely helmed by, um, you know, shithead, like, right, you know, like Jake, like the likes of Jake Tapper. And so I, I was going to call him a centrist, but he's barely even a centrist at this point. Uh, he's a center right type of guy, um, and you know you don't see any uh, anything beyond really that sort of uh, centrist orbiting uh, style of thinking on on the cable news networks, and that's sadly where lots of people get their news. So I mean, I'm not in a, I'm in a, I'm not in a particularly optimistic uh, frame of mind about the future of media at the moment. Right. Um, that being said, uh, what do you as someone who's like radical? What do you what are your thoughts on the current um, wave of like leftist podcasting, like Chapo and Red Scare and all that? I don't really have too much an opinion on any of that uh, because weirdly, I don't, um, I don't like have a much of a pod. I never really became like a podcast guy. I don't. know. It's like. Uh, no offense to, to you. No, no, I don't think not at all. Here, but um, I just don't really listen to uh, many podcasts. I not I guess part of that might be because I like I don't commute. Uh, you know, I feel like not that's word. when everyone listens to their podcasts is like on their way to work. And uh, uh but um, no, I, I don't really. I I definitely I don't really listen to either of those. But I, I think that the um, that you know I, I uh, the Chapo. I, folks they, they do a lot of good work and i'm glad that they exist and are out there and and uh i certainly think uh felix is one of the funniest guys on twitter so uh you know i'm all i'm all for their success do you think um so you wouldn't say so you wouldn't say you're you ever jump on that a wave yourself of doing a, a hell world podcast something like that no people like uh, they so on Substack they've started this thing where you can just easily like embed a pod a podcast yeah tool and I don't know. I, I love interviewing people. Um, you know, I've done it thousands of times in my life, but it's different when you interview people, uh, for writing a story, uh, like that's a, that's a, um, a a tool and a muscle that I've I've very much cultivated over the years. But, uh, I think interviewing for, for something that's going to be broadcast, that's like, it's a totally different thing that I just never really learned how to do. Um, so, but no, I, I'm going to focus on I, like uh, the 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 newsletter is basically 
what my podcast would be, but I just, you know, I just write it down, you know, I, right. I, uh, but you know, and I also feel like I missed the boat, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's too late now. There's too, there's so many, it would just be so hard to stand out. Word. And finally, you, what, what are some of your, um, in, you've been working for like, you know, almost 20 years now, it seems like what mm-hmm. are, what are some of the pieces you feel you're most proud of today on your byline? Oh geez, I should have prepared me for that one. Um, I, I, some of them are. So the the with the Welcome to Hell World book mm-hmm. that's coming out soon. It's it's mostly the newsletter stuff, um, but uh, I included a bunch of different essays, you know, that I wrote for elsewhere for mm-hmm. Esquire, or The Guardian, or, or Boston Magazine, or a place like that. Uh, one of them that's in there, it's probably one of my favorites, was from like four or five years ago. Mm-hmm which was for Esquire, which was about um, the phenomenon of needing to go viral in order to uh, do a, uh, a GoFundMe for your help for healthcare. Yeah. And, um, you know, we are all sort of really accustomed to that at the moment, but it was sort of like this fresh horror a few years ago uh, where people were like, you can't just be like, I'm sick, I need help. You need to be sick in this sort of relatable and marketable way yeah and um <clears throat> so i did a big thing on that and I, I i don't know that's probably one of my favorite things that i've ever done and it also sort of perfectly encapsulates um what what i mean by hell world you know it's not mm-hmm. like we don't just live in a country where you get sick and die we live in a country where you have to do this sort of horrible uh you know song and dance so you don't die first if that makes sense no yeah um so that's probably one of my favorites uh and uh there's another one in there about um that i did for boston magazine about um what happens to you know as people start to die uh and what happens to their digital footprint and all of the the you know the text messages and voicemails and things like that that we have Mm -hmm. of our you know, our, our parents or, or, you know, lovers or whoever, when they die and we, um, you know, sort of the, the, the weird dystopian aspect to that and, and holding on to them forever. And, um, so I'd say those are two of my favorites. I guess, uh, one of the big ones I did for the newsletter was where I uncovered this shitty, uh, scheme that a bunch of publications were using for this, um, payment portal called work market where they Mm. were actually charging writers to be able to take out their money. And uh, I sort of exposed that. So I was was pretty proud of that one. Um, But yeah, that's probably a pretty good cross spectrum of the type of things that I've done. Nice. Luke, I like to end um, most, I'm I'm starting, we're starting ending on the podcast now where when we end these interviews, like we like to end with a quick segment called nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. So Luke, a couple quick questions. These are very simple. Number one, when you're writing an, your newsletter or an article or whatever you may be, do you use Google Docs or Microsoft Word? Uh, I use Word, but I know oh, I wow. should be using. I mean, I sometimes <laughs> use Google Docs, but like I've lost, you know, things that I've worked so hard on when when computers are fried and they were mm-hmm. they were just on a, a you know Word doc, so. If it's something that I'm working on that I would be devastated that, that I lost all of it, I'll write it in Word. But like occasionally, I'll go over, tab over to Google Docs and like save it in there just in case. All right, a little, little both. 
Do you use a MacBook? Are you Mac or Windows? Mac, MacBook, yeah. Nice. Pro or Air? Air. Nice. Do you write in double spaced or default space, which I guess is like single or point fifteen? Uh, single. There you go. Okay, Luke. Um, thank you for doing this interview. Really appreciate hey, the time. No problem. Yeah, I hope it uh, goes well for you. And uh, thanks for taking an interest. No, no, man. No problem, man. Anytime. It's a uh, good stuff. Keep up the good work. All right, cool. Same to you. Nice right. talking to you, man. Nice to you, man. Peace. Bye. guys and that i hope you enjoyed that um that uh fascinating interview with luke o'neill no that was a uh, i really enjoyed doing that one and i'm really happy with how that one turned out um this next interview we got is one that joe was here for mm-hmm. uh, we interviewed uh jeremy kaplowitz mm-hmm. kaplowitz kaplowitz yeah um kaplowitz he, he's a hilarious guy he writes for hard drive which is the hardtimes.com their uh, video game satire vertical he's the editor-in-chief uh, editor-in-chief that's right and um you may know him if you're uh, on twitter as you may know him as ace Watkins, the gamer president uh running for president as the doing identity politics but for gamers basically <laughs> um it's a really funny fucking character that he does and uh it was an interesting interview he's a super chill guy so I think you like that one. He really is. Yeah, we talked about gaming, uh, the game, gamer culture, and mm-hmm. uh, why it's so funny, which is something I st- I still think is really fascinating. How yeah, I mean, he he even had trouble articulating it. It's um, something about it that's just so interesting. It's very yeah, it's enigma. Uh, I it's, don't know what's so funny. About the idea of like just gamers rising up as a subculture. Yeah, just like gamer as an identity. Um, and we didn't talk about Gamergate at all, which I'm happy. Yeah, I am too. It would have been like the early episodes where it was a little bit darker at that point. Mm-hmm, but yeah. uh, no, this was a pretty funny interview. We talked about Jeremy's, again, Jeremy's background. How, he's a stand-up comedian, how he got into that. We talked about Pete Holmes. That was funny. And, yeah. Uh, um, we also talked about uh, the Facebook page that he ran a couple of years ago called Lizard People of New York. Yeah, not to be confused with um, People of New York or Millennials of New York, the other parody of it on yeah, that page. <laughs> so if you want to, you could uh, look that up on Facebook. Yeah, also very funny. Very um, funny. Everything, this guy's just a, a funny guy overall. So he's, he's also written for um, um, Clickhole. Clickhole. And um, um, The Onion. He, no, he hasn't written for The Onion, I don't think. No, no. Never or maybe he has. I don't know. Either <laughs> no, way, it was a good time. So uh, yeah, Jeremy Kaplowitz, baby. Let's do it. Downward Trending, the podcast where three friends break down the vast subcultures of the internet. I'm Lewis. I'm Joe. And today we're with some, we got Jeremy Kalpowitz on the podcast. Jeremy, um, hey. how would you describe yourself, Jeremy? Who is Jeremy Kalpowitz? Um, how would I describe myself? Uh, oh boy, I'm a comedian, I'm a writer. Uh, I, I should point out, I, I generally don't care about people, I don't mind if you mispronounce my name, but it's just funny because it's, it's Kalpowitz and it's funny oh, to I'm describe sorry. myself. No, no, I don't mind at all. But it's a funny question to describe someone who's a slightly different, like my uh, my alter ego, whose whose letters are slightly switched around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's funny. We have a friend named Dalvin, and um, his alter ego is Darvin. That's his evil. Oh. Yeah, it's so. Darvin or Calvin at times, depending <laughs> on the day. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, you uh, might know Jeremy as the editor-in-chief of Hard Drive Mag, a uh, vertical of The Hard Times. It's just mm-hmm. a hilarious um, satire publication of sort of like punk and music culture, and Hard Drive is the gaming version to that. Um, recently, he's gained Twitter fame as uh, <laughs> the gamer uh, perspective presidential candidate, Ace Watkins. Um, which is just a fantastic, like, sort of, just like, uh, like you, Ace Watkins just kind of sounds like it would be a character in like Wall Street, <laughs> someone like that. It's just a and the photo thing. works too. I mean, for a profile pic, the photo works perfectly. Yeah. Yes, uh, the photo is um, comedian uh, Phil Jameson, who okay. has been playing Ace in all our interviews and videos <laughs> and such. He's really funny. How did that come about? How did um, Ace Watkins Gamer Press Twenty Twenty happen? <laughs> Uh, I mean, so for a long time, uh, the hard times has kind of seen Twitter as a, a bit of a waste because it's like, you know, it's fun to use Twitter, but it, we, it doesn't really drive clicks to your website. So mm-hmm. I was kind of given free reign to do whatever I wanted on Twitter, which led to me just kind of like shit posting about like all sorts of dumb stuff. And one of the things I've been doing for a long time was like making dumb tweets about how like, oh man, if a gamer was president, like all these issues would be fixed. <laughs> like we'd have skate four and just like dumb jokes. <laughs> And then eventually we um, were just like, let's just like go all the way and hire our friend to just play like a, a version of what that would be. And, and we wrote up all these these jokes for Ace Watkins. And we were like, man, it'll be cool to get like 5,000 followers, mm-hmm. you know, in the mm-hmm. first few days. And then in, I think like the first day we were at, we had more followers than actual presidential candidate John Delaney. John Delaney, yeah. <laughs> like, so ridiculous. Yeah. But. Yeah, John Delaney, just what a pathos-filled character he is. <laughs> he'll, like, post things, and he'll get, like, ten retweets, and, like, you'll see, like, Stefan Heck be like, damn, yeah. ten retweets, ouch, man. Yeah, that's uh, my favorite thing about attacking John Delaney, is that you know his staff sees it, because they don't get a lot of notifications. It's not like, <laughs> no, his, his phone's not blowing up that much. It's Yeah, he's sort of like a Gil from The Simpsons type. <laughs> he's Gil, yeah. Um, yeah, Ace Watkins, I mean, I've always been a fan of, like, fake versions of things. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you remember Carl Diggler, the yes. political Yeah, player. Felix Biederman in uh, Virgil Texas. Virgil Te- yeah, um, who ended <laughs> up predicting the, act, the primaries more accurately than Nate Silver, 538. <laughs> and so ever since that, I've just been obsessed with just, like, fake versions of people. And something about Ace Watkins, man, like... What do you think it is about gamers and gamer culture? Yeah. And just simply saying the word, like, you know, <laughs> gamers rise up. You know, gamer was in charge. Everything would be great. Like, what do you think is it that about gamers and gamer culture that oh, is just man. so funny to people? And do, you well, think what's, uh, do you think what's funny about it has changed in the course of its existence? Yeah. I mean, um, God, video games. Uh, I, I feel like it's one of those weird things where, like, there was this whole identity that like nerdy people built around being nerdy. And and now that like, it's very profitable and cool to be a fan of like superheroes. They don't know what to do. So they're just like, fuck it. Like, and they're just like digging deeper. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, it's very funny. It's, it's, it's always fun to like, cause the, I feel like normally the gamer rise up thing, like is, is very uh, right wing or like alt right. And it's been fun to sort of uh, piss off a lot of the people who think that we're going to (laughs) go alt right by being more left wing. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, you're right, like, Marvel is, like, the most profitable um, yeah. franchise to the point where, like, 
you know, like a China with like their nascent mm-hmm. capitalist economy is just like mm-hmm. billions of dollars into it. Yeah, or you find like a uh, video on YouTube of a guy doing like Africa by Toto, but it's like fifty cartoon impressions doing all the songs, and they get like crazy views and clicks. Yeah, and so sort of nerd culture, quote unquote, yeah. has become the mainstream now. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's like that's been happening for so long that it's oh, right. not. Like, you know, totally novel for me to be like, well, it turns out that uh, it's really popular to like superheroes. But um, that's definitely like where that that stems from, I think. (laughs) So um, you said like pretty quickly you had more followers than uh, John Delaney. (laughs) Um, How quickly did it catch on? It it really blew up. I I don't, you know, it's been super weird. It blew up a lot quicker than we thought it would. I mean, obviously, I'm like really happy with how well the Hard Times and Hard Drive does as a whole, but I don't think any of us predicted. Like, even at the Hard Times, like I probably, you know, the we didn't really tell the Hard Times that much that we were doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, they were a little annoyed. They're like, "You guys got to like tell us if you're going to launch this big thing." And we're like, <laughs> "We didn't. Like, we thought it was just going to be like a dumb tweet. Like, no one thought it was going to be like people. We, we we get like interview requests all the time. It's like it's been kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. And so like- it's definitely unexpected. It's just, like, it's interesting because, like, there's that, you know, the Mark Twain quote, like, mm-hmm. explaining a joke is, like, dissecting a frog. Mm-hmm. And it's, but it's, like, the thing is, like, I really, like, I just, like, I can't stop. I have to keep going back to, like, I just don't know what it is that's so funny about. About gamer culture. About and, gamer culture. Did that, you have a gamer, yeah. like, a guy, like, just gaming with Mountain Dew and shit? Just the, <laughs> the archety- yeah. You know, the archetypical image, but then you have the even larger cultural image of Do it. you think it has anything to do um, with this specific presidential election? Just yeah. How, um, well, I don't know. I mean, I think it definitely is something that could probably only exist in the Trump era, even though we're not, like, trying to do Trump jokes. Because, like, it seems like, not even the Trump era, but just, like... Gamergate, like, post-Gamergate well, internet. Sure. Well, with, like, the primaries, I mean, yeah. you have people like Andrew Yang. Yes. And the podcast who, president. Seems like he's the first president to run self-consciously as a meme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Star Wars, like, uh, go vote video he did. Yeah, and, and yeah. so... I think almost what makes it so funny is that, like, uh, a gamer running for president um, really doesn't <laughs> seem that far off from reality. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, like, you know, people are so wrapped up in the identity of being a gamer. Mm-hmm. It's even though, like, video games, you know, you, you'd hope that, like, in 30 years, video games, it would be like someone being like, oh, I'm super into reading books or watching movies where you're like... That, yeah, like, everyone likes movies. It's not like, like, what do they say, like, 90% of people play video games in the U.S.? So I'm guessing, you know, in 30 years, it'll probably be an actual gamer president just because, like, yeah, people have played Mario and exist in the world. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just, uh, it's it, it's one of the last, like, major pop culture things that's, like, super-duper popular, but also something that people latch onto as an identity. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the, the silliness comes from, where it's, like, you, you see all these people who are just... I don't know, trying to identify something that everyone likes. Yeah, no word. Do you think there'll be like a beta or work type thing where it'll be like, you know, like, like Beto keeps like pushing the fact that he's in a punk band? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think it'll be the same thing where like with a gamer like candidate? Like he's doing like Smash Brothers capitalism or something like that? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I mean, that's what Hillary did in 2016. She did the Pokemon go to the polls that's nonsense. True, yeah. And now Liz Warren's going to do Old Town Road, go to the Old Town polls. <laughs> I, would, I mean, I hope so. Me. Throw someone on the... Uh, Lil Nas X did reject Mayor Pete's request to be on the that. remix. 
That was oh, that was such a good thing. That, that was hilarious. <laughs> seeing that story just like played to my like sense of humor so well. <laughs> it's like yeah. of course a candidate was gonna try to get on an old town road just <laughs> as it was be getting old. Dalvin know? wants uh, Liz Warren to do one. <laughs> An old town or she, he, he's like, get her on, and I'm like, on one, and I'm like, are you sure about that? Honestly, do you want her to win or not? I'm not. I, I'm not sure, like, how much Lil Nas X like knows about Mayor Pete specifically. He doesn't. He even said, like, I don't know much about him. I just way, don't want to be like politically. Either way, sad. it's like a very. It just shows how intelligent he is and how attuned to internet culture he is. Yeah, because he knew that if he did an old town road remix, oh, yeah. with the presidential candidate, it would, it would kill it. It would be over immediately. <laughs> That'd be huge. Yeah. It's like when Lena Dunham did the pantsuit rap. It's like... Right. That was yeah. a good era. So, Jeremy, how did you um, get... Mi- <laughs> <laughs> how did you get up uh, mixed up with um, the hard times and start... Oh. How did you start, how did you start writing satire in general? Because I know you did um, Lizard People of New York. Right? Sure. How, so how did yeah. all of that... How did all of that lead to uh, writing for the hard times and eventually um, editing um, for sure. Hard Drive? Um, Were you a gamer so, growing up, actually? What's up? Were you a gamer growing up and everything? Um, you know, I never... I, like, played a bunch of video games growing up. I definitely was, like, a big Halo 3 kid and all that stuff. But I don't think that I was, like... Like, you know, I feel like growing up you have a lot of... You know, everyone has, like, their friend who's like, I'm going to be a video game guy when I grow up. And I definitely wasn't that guy. But uh, I started doing comedy in college. I know you guys are Stony Brook students. I went to Binghamton yeah. University. Okay. Cool. Where there was... Um, we started a comedy stand-up comedy club, and I was doing stand-up there. What'd you study there? I majored in economics. Oh, okay. It's uh, very uh, useful, though. So I don't know. Um, I was pretty bad at school. I did a lot of stand-up while I was not supposed to be. I was should have been studying, probably. But, um, yeah, was, so that's when I started doing Lizard People of New York was in college. It was just kind of like another thing where I wanted to do, like, a one-joke thing, but then people liked it, so I just kept going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was writing a bunch of... When I graduated, I was trying to write for a bunch of different websites. Um, the cool thing about a lot of websites, like The Hard Times Above Average, uh, The Onion's a little harder, but Reductress, you can just... Anyone can pitch to write for them, and it's just a matter of, like, trying a bunch of times and writing a lot and then uh, getting better. So I was just writing for a ton of websites, and, um, and I started writing for The Hard Times which is, I think, probably the easiest website to write for just because they're, like, extremely transparent. Anyone can write. Mm-hmm. Just send in a, You can just send in a pitch tomorrow, and the editor-in-chief of The Hard Times will read it. And uh, so, yeah, I was just writing for them, writing a lot of articles. And then um, I don't know how in-depth you want me to get it to, but uh, I, sta- I was writing. Uh, so for Wizard People of New York, I was getting sick of doing it, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't like doing it anymore. So I wanted to get help. So I was, I was talking to it's me and my friend Mike Amory, who is an editor for Hard Drive now too? And uh, Matt Sainkum, the editor in chief of The Hard Times, we were chatting, and I was like, I want to like figure out how to do this better. And all three of us came up with this idea for a website called Truthbang. I don't know <laughs> how into Wizard People of New York we were, but that was a short-lived project because it was a, a satire of um, the alt right, and it failed very miserably. Oh, truth. And um, truth. it was uh, we created a whole fake character. His name was Ben Brown, and he was like an Alex Jones type, and we had all these like crazy alt right like satire things and it was just awful. And then, um, that turned into hard drive at the end that fell. And then we were like, let's do a different thing. And that was hard drive. How'd you meet Matt Sancombe initially? Um, he, like I said, like if you write for the hard times, it's super easy oh, to just okay. like talk to whoever created it. So, um, it's a really democratic system there. There's a big pitch group in the hard times and right. people pitch and then everyone votes on it. And then the editors decide what will make it onto the site. And so, 
Yeah, it was just like, you know, I had written a few good articles, so I was kind of just like, they they knew my name, I knew, and we had chatted a few times, so yeah, it's really easy. I, I didn't meet him in person until years later, actually. Oh, okay. And then, do you feel like doing a set like this, have you, since doing um, Hard Drive, have you kind of familiar familiarized yourself more so with gamer culture at all? Like, have you made an effort to, like, have you tried to, like, do that, or did you kind of just um, go off of just um, what are, just instinct and such? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I definitely like grew up, uh, with like nerd culture and game or stuff like that. My, I, and you know, obviously if you want to have a good video game comedy website, you should try to read up as much as you can. It's definitely a good ex- excuse to just like play a video games all the time. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, well, I got to research for my, uh, fake job. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, my, I feel like my job as an editor is to take people's video game ideas and make them funnier. So, mm-hmm. uh, I don't worry too much about being an expert in everything, but. You know, that's like, you know, we have four different editors. Everyone kind of has their niche. Mm-hmm. We come together as one big video game uh, Voltron. What's your niche, would you say? My niche? Yeah. Uh, ooh, that's a good question. Um, I definitely know a lot about, I feel like I, I'm, I'm big into, like, the movies and TV. And so I, a lot of times, like, if there's, I think I've written, like, eight articles complaining about George R. R. Martin not writing his books fast enough. <laughs> so that's definitely a niche. Um, yeah, I guess like if you look on the website, I bet a lot of, uh, a lot of Game of Thrones and a lot of Smash Bros articles are probably written by me. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, with Hard Drive, how long has that been going by the way? Hard Drive? Yeah. When did it start? It was a little over two years. I think it was June, 2017. Oh, okay. Wow. I thought it was longer. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> with like Hard Drive Mag, um, like, <coughs> sorry. Um, uh, so like, are you looking to like expand uh, the website's coverage in in any way, or or you're just like sticking like straight satire? Oh yeah, because I know um hard times did um hard, has just launched hard noise. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like, would you want to do um, that with some like hard drive at all? Hard that'd be pixels? cool. I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely love to. Hard Noise has been really cool because it's a collaboration with Pure Noise, uh, right. which is a record company. Mm-hmm. And it's been really cool because it allowed for they like paid us a bunch of money, and now um, the editor of the Hard Times, Bill Conway, gets to go gets to be the first employee of the Hard Times, which has been really awesome. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, um, yeah, I'd love to do that kind of stuff. I, it's always fun to expand and do different things. That's why we're doing the whole Ace Watkins thing. Is like right. it's fun to like you know see how far we can push like a character. Like we're gonna do some live shows probably in like a month or so <laughs> as like political rallies. Oh, be really? really fun. Has anyone ever? Um, have you got any like messages um, from people who think Ace Watkins is real <laughs> or who take it at face value? Every ten minutes, uh, if I look, at, I'm gonna open up Twitter. Uh, we have like like we get like uh, maybe fifteen tweets or direct messages a day asking if it's real. Uh, it's been really weird. Right. And to those people, I say yes, it's real. Go write them in. <laughs> it's funny. Fucking, who cares? It's funny because, yeah, like observing like Ace Watkins, it seems like it's in this perfect sweet spot where enough people know it's a joke and enough yeah. people are confused and think it's real. It's where you just get like the best cocktail of replies to anything <laughs> you tweet. Um, yeah. How many times has Ace Watkins like gone in character on like a podcast or a show or, or anything like that? And if he hasn't, would you want him to? 
Uh, he's done it a few times, mm-hmm. not too often, because it's actually kind of hard to be on as Ace Watkins for like too long. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he was on um, Dorkly. They did a little stream and he was on, uh, I can't remember, Internet Today is a YouTube channel he was on. Mm-hmm. If we've been trying to limit him like a, like we're a real campaign staff, you know, we don't want him out there too much. Right. <laughs> keep him uh, keep him precious. He needs to be well rested for his. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Instead of well, yeah. doing um, a restaurant photo op like everyone, would he do like a you know like an arcade photo op or something like that? Stranger <laughs> Things <laughs> kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll do all sorts of stuff. We'll do a. I, I want to do a rally in Second Life. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Have people. We'll kiss people's uh, virtual babies. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually, I just. Uh, my friend Dal and I were reading about um, this man who runs like a VR church. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. through Oculus Rift and wow, um, and it's funny because like we were talking and we we're like, this might be the cure for like inceldom if they just like put on goggles and go to like VR like, Christian <laughs> church. Yeah, just give them a, their own little society to live in. Yeah, yeah why not, man? So you should quarantine do, him online. He should do um, a photo up there, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the crucial incel vote. Yeah, <laughs> the crucial. Uh, do you ever does Aid? What is Aid Watkins's um, position on incels? Yeah, is he, is he trying oh to appeal? To, is he trying I, to appeal I, to the incels? I'd like to think that Ace Watkins is anti-incel. Mm-hmm. We've been making jokes about how um, Ace Watkins isn't has never had sex before. Like we keep doing all these jokes, these jokes about. Uh, Oh, how yeah. like you can't have a sex scandal if you never had sex and i didn't even realize it but like all these um asexual people have like have been looking up to ace as a oh. as a asexual icon wow. i never I, I totally forgot that the that the word that asexual people use for themselves is aces mm-hmm. oh. and um it was all there right in front of us the whole time yeah that's great yeah ace. so ace is canonically volcel i guess nice yeah, nice. You can only he only, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Sure. He only focuses on the gaming, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. he's a single issue vote uh, candidate, and that is gaming. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the number one issue. Yeah. What was I gonna say? Um, how did you? Wh- where are you from, Jeremy? I am from. Uh, I'm from Long Island. I'm from Valley Stream. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, Nassau County. Oh, wow. Okay. How was that? Wait, wait, what are your thoughts? On, what is uh? What is Jeremy Kaplowitz's thoughts on Long Island? Oh boy, uh, very flat. Could be a little hillier. Mm-hmm. It is a little. It is very flat. What are your thoughts on? Um, we're in a post bagel guy society. Do you feel like the Raptors coming for Long Island? Yeah, for Long Island. Yeah. Oh man, I hope so. That'd be great. <laughs> Get rid of it. Dunk it into the ocean. Are you guys from Long Island? I know you're yeah. in Stony Brook. I'm from Holbrook, baby. Yeah, uh, I'm from Lake Ronkonkoma, which is a town okay. known for having a haunted lake. Yeah, I I would say on our side of things, Franconcoma is known for being the end of a train, subway line, the train station. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Bagel Guy lives about twenty minutes away from us. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I knew like as soon as that happened, because it said it was at a Bagel Boss, which is like a chain. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one like, in my neighborhood. I, I was like, oh fuck, he's like, <laughs> this has to be Suffolk County. There's a comedian, um, Tim Dillon. Who had he has a podcast and he he's from Long Island too, but he was saying like yeah. he made a good point. If you point a camera at anywhere where goods and services are offered, <laughs> you will find a bagel boss type guy or a situation like yeah. that happening anywhere at any point of the day. I was gonna say I like to think that he's like a mythical like leprechaun like figure and he just exists in every shopping. <laughs> he's on cameo. <laughs> yeah. 
He's on Cameo now. It's it's a nightmare. Um, he tried to turn it into like a viral thing. That guy. He he made a whole <laughs> yeah. Twitter account. He's selling merch. I mean, he probably yeah. He probably got an agent and manager. Right? <laughs> yeah, probably. He got a development deal off of that. He's doing a show where he boxes other um, viral celebrities. That is so dark. I'm not, even, I'm not even joking. It's a real thing that's happening. Wonderful. That's so dark. Um, yeah, so, like, how did you get into stand-up? Were you, like, a comedy nerd growing up? Yeah, how did you get into stand-up? Oh, yeah. Were you always writing as a kid? How did, you, how did, you, how did comedy and writing in, come together, and how did you get into those things in general? Uh, yeah, I was definitely someone who was, like, writing jokes all the time. Uh, I had a friend in high school who we both, like, got really into stand-up comedy and had somehow convinced ourselves that you had to be 18 to do it. So okay. we just, like, wrote in notebooks and then threw them away. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, and then uh, I visited him in college at Geneseo, and we saw Patton Oswalt, who's like one of our favorites, oh, oh, nice. and his opener was fucking awful, and it inspired us to finally uh, to go do comedy. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, so like, so did you form the stand-up comedy club at Binghamton? Uh, I did not. I joined, I want to say, in its second year. It was it was formed by a guy named Mike Amory, who I, I mentioned before is now an editor for The Hard Drive. Um, but yeah, I, I joined pretty early on. That's always like very interesting to me because um, I almost went to Emerson College in Boston, mm-hmm. and they have you know that's like the like comedy writing school. Yeah, and yeah. They have like a stand up comedy club, like an improv club. Don't they have the uh, and, comedy major? I know. Yeah, some, yeah. The, the, yeah. They have a that's wild. Major. That is weird. <laughs> I don't know if I would major in that, but I um, would not. No, that'd be a bad major. Yeah. You can major. You don't need to. No one's like checking your resume at open mics. You don't need yeah. to major in comedy. No. Um, so, yeah, like how did the stand up comedy club work? Would you just like workshop sure. jokes and like try them out in front of each other? Yeah. Yeah, basically. That was basically it. We were a bunch of. We just had like a group of people and we would hang out in um, like, you know, rooms and just like do our own little open mics. And then we would put shows on around campus and around town. Oh, that's sick. That's great. Nice. Yeah, it was really cool. College uh, is one of the easiest places to do stand-up comedy, and I recommend it to everyone. Um, yeah, so, like, did you become known around campus? or? or uh, we, you know, a little bit. We, not too much, but um, my senior year, Nick Offerman came to campus, and we somehow convinced the SA to let us open. And, uh, yeah, it was really cool. I got to do stand-up for, like, 3,000 people in college. Oh, that's great. Oh, my God. How was that? It was uh, the biggest audience I will ever do comedy in front of. And it was really cool. <laughs> what were you? What kind of? What comedians and what comedy were you? What, what kind of? What were you into uh, growing up? As you were kind of um, growing up. Yeah. Um, I was really into uh, like I want to say like my favorite comedians growing up were like Mike Birbiglia and Patton Oswalt. Those those kind of guys. Um, I was really into, like, really, really into Pete Holmes, yeah. and I know that's like not a cool <laughs> thing to say in 2019. Everyone hates on Pete Holmes online, but um, I, I, I stand by his his first his special. Yeah, what was that called? Like Impregnated with Wonder or something like that. That was his album, which okay. is like fine. And then he had a special called uh, Nice Try the Devil. Right. Yeah. That was really good. And then he had um, Crashing, and Did people like really crashing? turned on him hard. Yeah, that that's interesting to see how like the rise and fall yeah. of even like minor cult celebrities now. Were you, were you a crash? Yeah. Were you a crashing guy? Did you, did you like no, crashing? No, I was not a crashing guy. That show was pretty awful. <laughs> too but many, uh, too yeah, many he's like one of those guys who got a little too famous and then lost his mind a little bit. Well, it's another. If I ever met him, I'd say I'm his biggest fan. But <laughs> on the podcast, I'm willing to make fun of him. It was another sad comedian. It's like um yeah, but still, it's like the the comedian the comedian who's sad show. 
It's a new re- like a revolutionary idea. Yeah. What if a comedian yeah. was sad? What if he had? There's uh, so fucking many of them. What if he had a lot of sex too? Get back at his. <laughs> what if he ex- got to uh, rewrite his wife as the his ex wife as the villain of his life? Very yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is weird. Yeah. Wait a minute. I, that's the thing. Like, I haven't seen people taking that angle with it because that's what I thought it would be. But yeah. it seems to be people just making fun of him for putting himself in too many sex scenes. <laughs> Yeah, know. you know, I didn't even get far enough in the show to get to the sex scene parts. Mm. I only watched like three episodes. Oh, okay. His Batman that stuff for Funny or Die was hilarious, though, I will say that. Yeah, he was funny. <laughs> I feel like he Batman was legit really good for a while. And then the more famous you get, the less connected you are to oh, your yeah. audience, because like, how do you stay relatable and super successful? It's the Judd Apatow like, effect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I used to work at a fucking Dollar Tree, which is a terrible job, but I used to do mm-hmm. overnight shifts, and I just used to listen to his podcast, like... Yeah, you made it weird. Every single, like, night. Yeah, me too. I think I listened to the Harris Whittles one, like, ten times. R.I.P. Mm-hmm. to a legend. Yeah, of course. Um, and, yeah, it's weird to see, like, because, like, it feels like the comedy boom is, like of the 2010s is like kind of over a little yeah. bit um and it's, it's peaked it's going down it's very interesting to listen to like people start their podcast yeah. go up through the comedy boom and then yeah like, watch them through like sort of the fall of it yeah um and i'm just like it's very interesting because like i'm not sure why the comedy boom has ended necessarily mm-hmm. i think it's oversaturation i think it's like Nef- it's stuff like netflix i think it's just, just yeah. too much of it like mm-hmm. how many how many com- how many times uh, have you seen now where it's like Netflix sh- uh, comedy show gets canceled and you're like I didn't even know that was a show mm-hmm. until yeah. like like um, uh, Netflix had a show called um another and I I have I've since watched this show and it's actually pretty good but uh Chuka and Birdie mm-hmm. I didn't even know I didn't know what that was until it got canceled really yeah, I suppose it's just like a classic boom and bust cycle. I think it's I think it's what it is honestly mm-hmm. yeah well Netflix the part of the problem with Netflix is that it's more useful to them to start a show than it is to continue it because they just want you to subscribe so it doesn't help them as much to have a season two when they could just start another show and advertise that right have you ever thought about going on the tv or or film like as a writer Uh, or something if they'll hire me man (laughs) i'll take any it's funny because like i yeah like i originally got into writing through writing comedy sketches same and i sort of had this like whole thing where like i applied to emerson i had to submit this big ass portfolio and I got in, but then, like, it was just, like, too expensive, so I'm like, all right, fuck this. Um, yeah. But it just seems like it's so hard to get a job. Because yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm just like, how am I, like, possibly going to make a go <laughs> of this if, like, I don't have rich parents? And then we chose journalism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we chose culture writing. Yeah, very similar. <laughs> yeah. Which is, a, yeah, which is totally an easy job where everyone gets paid a living wage. <laughs> so good for us. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm in the same boat as you guys. Nice. Uh, people often ask me what it's like working full time at the hard times, and I'm like, I have an office job. Yeah, weird. That's why I'm going to law school. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. So wait, so hard times is not your full time? Like, this is not your full time job. It is not. I mean, I'd like it to be sooner than later. It might, maybe soon, it will happen. But right now, it is not. Ah, oh, word. Um. So yeah, just going back to like lizard people of New York. I, I remember, mm. like, I, I was into it when it was out. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I just looked back at it before we did um, we started here and what I forgot was that you just took normal humans of New York pictures <laughs> and just tweaked, yeah. and just tweaked them a little bit 
just like it seems it's just kind of like that the way like Vic Berger edits yeah. videos where he takes what's already there and tweaks it mm-hmm. by like ten percent and it just makes it that just much funnier. It completely absurd. Like yeah, were you aware uh, that you were sort of capturing like lightning in a bottle with that? I no, I definitely did not know I was, and it was slow. It was a pretty slow build. I, I think like the first like month or so, I was really excited that I got to like a thousand followers, which now I feel like no one would really think is that impressive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was really, that was definitely something that I was like, I just thought it would be a one time joke, but I wanted to fill the page with like <laughs> six or seven so that it looked like a thing mm-hmm. and then just kept doing it. Um, so like how's stand up going? Are you thinking of like recording your hour soon? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my plan is to have a new hour every year for eight years uh, and then, uh, get canceled. <laughs> get canceled. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Goes on Legion of Skanks, gets canceled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I haven't been doing that much stand-up lately because of the hard times. The hard times has taken up a a lot of my time. Mm -hmm. But I think that's kind of what everyone is doing right now. I was hanging out with a bunch of comedians lately, or recently. I remember someone was like, oh, look, it's a bunch of comics. And then someone was like, no, we're kind of all, like, media people now. Like, we're we're all, like, podcast adjacent. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you like being a me? Do you like do you like that? Um, that? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of weird. Like you guys were saying, you know, the the stand up boom is kind of in a weird place where like I think people are kind of bored with stand up right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, for you know, to to some extent, uh, obviously there's a lot of great comedians right now who are like really killing it. But I, I would love to be doing more stand up. I don't know. It's a little bit of everything. They call it the um, the dandelion effect or a strategy uh. where you want to put out as many seeds as you can and hope that one will grow. Right. Is that an economic strategy? <laughs> no, not that I know of. I Nuts. was an awful economic student. I, I feel like that's more of like a, like an entrepreneur thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting, uh, because like someone who like I love and can never shut up about Connor O'Malley. Oh, he's great. Um, that's sort of what he does. Like he was a writer he was, he did stand up. Yeah, he wrote for Seth Meyers. He did for like sketches, and then he sort of blew up um, doing his um, strange like Trump supporting yeah. character. Then he started doing Howard Schultz, which <laughs> the, his like Mark Sievers. Um, that was like so interesting to me because it seems like I actually wrote about this at the school, but it's so hard to satirize um, yeah. Trump for yeah. all the obvious reasons that like everyone knows. Like, yeah, right. Um, but he sort of captured like what is so funny and terrifying <laughs> about just like yeah. the manic energy that surrounds his whole like ethos, basically. No way. Um, and yeah, like it, that seems to be sort of the way to go is just sort of just be like a polymath almost. You sort yeah. of have to make yourself into a jack of all trades now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah I think Conor O'Malley is probably the only person to successfully satirize Trump in that way. Yeah. We tried. I mean, like, like I said, like we had a website called Truth Bang, and it wasn't particularly successful. And then, like, right around the same time was the Mark Sievers. Mm. Uh, I think his is called Truth Hunters. Yeah. yeah. And then um, Patriot Hole came out like a month or two later on the Onion. And then the fucking terrible Jordan Klepper show, which is weird because everyone on it is like super funny. Mm-hmm. It's just really. I think it's just really difficult. Yeah. I mean. Wait, was Jordan Klepper's show the, uh, the president show? No, no, no. No, that's um, the opposition with Jordan oh. Klepper. He was supposed to... Yeah, you know, it's weird because... I don't think I watched that one. Was it bad? It wasn't bad. I wouldn't say bad. I don't know. I was, it just was, like, toothless. It, it uh, didn't... Like Samantha yeah. Bee kind of thing. <laughs> well, it's not even that. It's that, like... He, it was very self-consciously he was trying to play, like, the Alex Jones kind uh, of, like, man conspiracy figure. Okay. 
But he was trying to satirize it in the same way that like John Stewart was satirizing <laughs> Bush, where it right. was, he was it was trying like that smug liberal like look how dumb uh, yeah. thing, and it's like that's not really how to do it. How you do it is you just put all the manic energy yeah. out there, and you you have to not really think about trying to be clever. Yeah. yeah. And when you have a bunch of brilliant comedy writers in a room, it's very hard to fight yeah. against that instinct to no, sort we're... of craft, like, perfect... Like these Harvard Lampoon guys. Per- per- like... Not even that, like, just, like, perfect... Yeah, like, uh, two of the guys on that show were Josh Sharp and Aaron Jackson, and they're both, like, like huge New York City comedy people that everyone loves. Right. Mm. And it's, like, yeah, it's sort of hard to fight against that instinct of trying to craft a perfect, like, setup punchline um, joke. Uh, when the real answer is just to be as dumb as possible. Well, that's, that, because that's, a, that's the time we're living in. It's probably, as dumb as and probably it could not be. even really have any writers. Like, just go off the cuff would even be funnier. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think O'Malley has writers. I don't even think he writes his stuff. I mean, I'd imagine he probably doesn't. I mean, it's probably, he probably improvs like all of it. He has. He's in a, he's in a construction really yard. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think um, Joe Perra has filmed a lot filmed of those it, videos. Yeah, too, yeah he so filmed and shot all out. those. Um, the construction yard thing, like what? what <laughs> those people working in the background, like he's wearing like orange contacts. He's covered in blood. They just like learn to ignore it, or does he like tell them what they're? I wouldn't doing? call it a guy if I didn't know people. They have to be very confused by what's going on, which honestly makes it even like so much fun. <laughs> have you ever seen an interview with Conor O'Malley where he's not in character? It's super jarring. It's very yeah. It's very it is strange. There's not that many, but it's he's weird. A very soft-spoken guy. Yeah, he's um, married to Ad Bryant. Yeah, that's right. Like I saw a woman, him and Joe Para, and seeing the both of them out of character, it just, mm-hmm. it was again, it was, it was just weird. I was like, I don't, because Joe, first of all, I didn't know Joe Para actually talked like that. Second of all, <laughs> no, I didn't. I thought that was like a joke. No, yeah. but no, it's actually his voice for the most part. He puts a little bit of an exaggeration on it, but yeah, it was just, it was, it was weird. It's like seeing like, you don't, you don't see that. Even because I was watching the Yeah, But Still interview with him, mm-hmm. which wasn't even an interview. It was just him as his weird like acting coach character. Yeah. <laughs> Like lives under like a, an overpass. Uh, Tyler Joseph. Tyler Joseph. Yeah, he got he got fired from his job because he cut off a girl's ponytail. Oh wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so that seems pretty good. No, I think so. Um, is there anything you would like to plug uh, before? Plug yourself, oh, Jeremy. Sure. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, just Google Jeremy Kaplowitz. I don't know. Uh, Ace Watkins. Go check out Ace Watkins. He's like our big guy right now. I think he's like he's he's maybe thirty followers away from a hundred thousand. Hell's yes. Oh, nice. Jeremy. And he's going to be the next president. Of course, probably. Jeremy. He's probably he would probably pull higher than uh, John Delaney. I think so. <sighs> I think he has already. <laughs> yeah. We like to end our interviews with a quick segment. I like to call nuts and bolts. Jeremy, a quick round of questions. It'll take only, okay. it'll only take a few seconds. Sure. When you're writing your articles, Jeremy, when you're writing, when you're making content, uh-huh. do you work on a, on a Mac or Windows system? Uh, Windows. I got a desktop computer. What? Okay. Question two. <laughs> Not or a bolt? Uh, either one, really. It's up to you. <laughs> Number two. When you're, writing your, when, you're, when you're making content and you're writing stuff, do uh-huh. you work through Google Docs or Microsoft Word? Oh, um, all of the hard times is run through Google Docs. Oh, I don't think anyone uses Microsoft. Luke O'Neill did. Oh, really? um, oh, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's from Patrick Marlborough. Um, really? Double spaced or single spaced? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm such a. Oh, oh you mean um, it's, it's single spaced? I believe. Nice, nice, nice. Times New Roman or Arial? I think it, the default's like Calibri or something. Beautiful, beautiful. That's the New York Times font. Yeah. yeah I know. Calibri. 
Oh, no, that's Georgia. Never mind. Yeah, I know. Uh-huh. Jeremy. This is Joe's Font Corner. This is Joe's Font Corner. Thank you for doing this interview, man. Really, I appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that special double length episode of Downward Trending. You can follow me on Twitter at LJMaroney2, and you can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Amendola. This has been da- this has been Downward Trending, the podcast where friends break down the vast subcultures of the internet. Yeah, baby! Look at this photograph!